0: Alright, if everybody who can hear me, you can get in your seats. That means you, Gladys. Uh, We're going to go ahead and have some announcements before we get started with with the sermon today. Um, And just so you know, this is kind of going to be going forward. If we have any announcements, we'll use this time uh, so that we're not encroaching into uh, the preaching portion of the service. We will be starting to live stream these announcements as well so everybody knows what's going on. Uh, The good news is we have announcements. That means things are going on, which is exciting. Uh, And we're praying and hoping that we continue to have things going on. But I'm going to try to get through some announcements fairly quickly for you, but please uh, pay attention so that you know what's coming up. Um, First of all, this coming Saturday, this is an event that just... Basically, got decided on yesterday. Um, but we are going to do, uh, a men's conference event, uh, this coming Saturday. Uh, that in the morning, uh, from nine o'clock to 11 o'clock in the morning, 11 30, sorry, nine to 11 30. There's, according to online, they start at nine. So. Show up at 9. If it doesn't start to 9.30, you're there early. It's not a big deal. All right, so let's go that way. So according to the... Who knows? But anyway, come at 9. Uh, Bob Baker said he's going to provide donuts. So, you know, that's, you know... I, well, he's going to get, like, he's going to get enough for everybody, hopefully. But if you show up early, you, you're going to guarantee you get a donut. All right, so uh, this conference is being put on by Paul Tripp. If you don't know Paul Tripp, he's a... Uh, pretty, he's a really good Bible teacher. I think he's from down around Philadelphia. We've had, we've done some parenting classes and marriage classes with his curriculum before. Uh, very solid, uh, Bible teacher. Uh, this is a men's event that's gonna be talking about what it means to be a man biblically. Uh, and is open to all ages. It's not capped at a certain age. So even if you have a younger boy that you'd like to bring with you to kinda learn about, what it looks like to be a biblical man, that would be a great opportunity for you to do that. So this is obviously, and I should, this obvi- should have been obvious, but this is for men uh, and their sons. Uh, and so if you guys want to come to that, it's going to be this Saturday. Again, be here at 9 or maybe a little earlier. Um, so that is coming up this coming Saturday. Uh, if you can't make it this Saturday, we're talking about maybe doing it again at a later date because of the short notice of things. Uh, we'll have the simulcast ability all the way through next December, so we might do it again, but we'd like you to try to make it this Saturday if possible. Um, also, that Saturday is Trunk or Treat, which is at night. So you got something in the morning, you got something at night. Uh, trunk or Treat is going to be starting uh, down at Ullman Community Church, and it starts at 6. If you're going to if you want to have a vehicle that's going to be there that you're going to give candy away, we only have spots for 20 vehicles this year. We've already got 10. So if you want to sign up, you need to do it soon. You can do it online. Uh, this week, I'm going to be sharing all the signups that we have going on right now online. Or you can talk to me directly, and I'll make sure that I get you into the sign signup. Uh, and that if you do sign up, you need to be there at 5.30, get set up. Then it'll be 6 to 7.30 that the, trick, the trick-or-treaters will come through. Uh, and that is the plan. If you have any questions about safety or how we're going to do things differently, please talk to me. We do have a whole plan uh, that is going to try to make this event still happen so that we can reach out to the community while still keep everyone safe. So if you have questions, please feel free to talk to me about it. Another thing coming up, and you've seen the table now for two weeks, is Operation Christmas Child. Uh, we are still able to do that this year. We just went to a meeting yesterday uh, with Felicia over in uh, Horseheads, and they uh, were talking to us about all the different new guidelines uh, uh, of how we're going to do it. But we're still going to do Operation Christmas Child. And there's two ways you can get involved, maybe more actually. Uh, but one way is you can pack a shoebox. You can grab a shoebox, get a list of stuff, pack it with things, and bring it in. Another thing you can do is you can bring just stuff that you buy. Uh, it can be a whole, like, sometimes you might find uh, stuffed animals for like 50 cents a piece, and you just want to buy like uh, 50 of them. And you bring them in, and you can put them in the south wing, and we are going to take all of that stuff that we've collected throughout the year, and we will have a packing party, which is going to be on November 21st. So people are going to be welcome to come, and we're going to set it up so people can uh, pack those boxes as a group. It's a great time to fellowship as well as... Uh, pack those boxes for Operation Christmas Child. Another way you can help out is to be part of the team that collects boxes from other churches in the area. Uh, and we have, we are a relay point, so a lot of people will bring, uh, a drop-off location. I mean, we're gonna, they'll bring their, their boxes, and then we pack them up in big boxes, and then we ship them over to big flats, uh, where they get shipped down to, Somewhere down south. So, uh, that if you want to help with that, there's going to be a sign-up coming out this week that you'll find as well. that you can sign up to help with that. There's different time slots throughout collection week. And if you have any questions about anything with Operation Christmas Child, your best bet is to talk to my wife. She will be able to answer any question you have. Um, finally, this has not made it into the bulletin yet, but it will. Um, and that is that we are going to have a membership class, uh, Lord willing. Uh, on November 14th is the plan right now. I know some of you have already talked to me, and it seemed like everybody's schedule was clear for the 14th. We're going to start at 9 in the morning, and we're going to go to lunch. I say lunch because sometimes that might be a little later than noon. We'll see how that works, but we will be providing you food. Uh, this is for anyone who is interested in becoming a member of our church, to commit yourselves to this body. Uh, if you've already done that, that's awesome. Don't just show up for lunch. Uh, these are for people who really want to follow in membership. Um, and even if you, at the end of the class, say, you know, I'm not quite ready for it, that's fine. We 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 would still invite you to be there. So if there's anyone here that is looking towards or thinking about membership, which is really the just the official commitment that you're making to the body here so that we can keep each other accountable and so that we can build each other up in a in, in a more official type of way, then we would love to have you join uh, the membership. And if that's you, again, that class is going to be November 14th. It's a Saturday. It's going to be 9 o'clock in the morning till lunch. And so we'd love to have you join us for that. I think those are all my announcements. I'm surely have missed something. But with all that being said, I will be done. And I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. And uh, keep your eyes and ears open because there will be more things coming up, Lord willing, in the future. So, thank you.
1: Ken could have announced a little longer. (laughs) (laughs) But we'll go ahead and pray together and get started. Father, thank you for this body. Thank you for these people. We are grateful that you have drawn us together into this place. Thank you for loving us in this way. You've sent your son to pay for our sins. We thank you that you continue to love us and you gather us together in your family. Thank you for adopting us. We didn't commend ourselves to you, but you have loved us anyway. Thank you, Father, for showing such love to us, showing us the way of love, even. And we thank you that your love for us provides the model and the template for how we should love each other, not only... In our everyday relationships, but also particularly in our marriages. And so we pray, Father, that as we open your word, you would speak this morning. Speak powerfully. Speak clearly. Speak in a way that moves us and changes us, motivates us, and sanctifies us. We need your power to be at work in us, and your power comes through your word. So we pray that you would speak. Speak life into places where there's death and darkness. Thank you that you have the power to speak in a way that I cannot. Thank you that your word has power that I don't. Thank you that you can do well beyond anything that we can ask or imagine. We need you to do those kinds of things in our hearts, those kinds of things in our families, in our homes, in our marriages, in our community, in our world. We thank you that you haven't abandoned us and you won't. Your promises are secure. Thank you for your faithfulness there. Would you help us as we open your word together? Would you help us to listen well? Would you help us to grow in our clarity and understanding your word? And also help us to respond with faith. Help us to believe what you have shown us in your word. Help us to respond with obedience in whatever ways we need to in our individual lives. Thank you that you can speak individually to us. Give us ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What makes a song great? Is there some set of features that number one hit songs have in common? Can greatness be mathematically analyzed? Does it have anything to do with beats per minute or number of drops? Is it a certain instrumental combination plus excellence of voice? Does each genre have its own standards, or is it all just subjective? Is greatness like beauty in the eye of the beholder or the ear of the listener? The Spirit of God has authoritatively identified for us the greatest song of all time. The title of the book that we're looking at is the first two Hebrew words of the book, which are literally translated into four English words. The Song of Songs. This construction is the Hebrew way of describing the superlative. So we have phrases like Lord of Lords, describing God as the greatest of all lords, or Holy of Holies, describing the most holy place in the temple or tabernacle. Thus, this is the greatest song. Why is it the greatest? Well, I'll leave that to each individual reader's judgment. But it's interesting to consider what some have thought about this book throughout history. The Jews certainly recognized its value and excellence. Our earliest preserved comments on the song come from around 100 A.D. A famous Jewish rabbi named Akiba said this, Whoever sings the Song of Songs as a sort of ditty has no share in the world to come. Rabbi Akiba is basically saying that anyone who treats this song as a common song, singing it as some silly ballad or show tune, will go to hell. That same rabbi also said on a different occasion, The whole world is not worth the day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel. All the writings are holy, and the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. I wonder, is that how you view the Song of Songs? Do you find it more excellent than, say, the Psalms? This assessment seemed to include a recognition that it contained uh, mature content. Some Jews indicated that a person shouldn't be allowed to read Song of Songs until they reached 30 years of age. Early Christians seem to have echoed that sentiment. More recently, in the late 1800s, one Anglican pastor said that the Song of Songs wasn't appropriate for public reading in a congregation of both men and women together, or even private reading by the impure in heart. How many parents have wondered the same thing about their young children? Hmm. Fortunately, children's Bibles don't provide an illustrated version of the song. (laughs) Concern about... The mature content certainly aided in the movement toward allegorical interpretations of the song. So, what is this song? I'm going to define it like this it is a poetic parable depicting a chorus of conversation similar to the book of Job, intended to serve as a spirit inspired criticism of King Solomon. Let's work our way back through that definition or description. So first, what is Solomon's relationship to this book? Most of your Bibles will have a big heading on there that says the Song of Solomon, but the title of the book comes from the first verse. In the text, the inspired scripture, Song 1-1 in the ESV gives the title line as the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Another way of translating it literally would be the Song of Songs, which is for Solomon. Typically, the reference to Solomon is assumed to be indicating his authorship of the song. However, the Hebrew is different than the typical title lines of Psalms, where authorship is almost always being communicated. Instead, we may have some intentional distancing so that this song has been composed by someone for Solomon as a message to him. And I believe it may be read as a message of critique or prophetic challenge even. Outside the title line, Solomon is mentioned by name six times. Each time by the woman and always in speech apparently directed to the daughters of Jerusalem. One writer summarizes this approach to the book with these observations... The greatest song is actually written in critique of Solomon, the harem-hardened, profligate, idolatrous old King Solomon. God gave the greatest song as a word of correction to the evil that old King Solomon carried on in the later years of his reign when God's blessings went to his head and he no longer kept covenant with Yahweh but gave way to his insatiable, lawless desires." Second, I'm referring to this book as a chorus of conversation. The book is driven by conversation between unnamed people. We'll come back to the identity of the characters in just a minute. But for now, just notice the similarity of the book with the book of Job, which is also largely composed of conversation in poetic form. Third, I'm referring to this book as a poetic parable. I see a narrative progression, a story being fleshed out through these poetic conversations. I don't think we can quite call this a drama, as in a modern stage play. The ancient Near East didn't have such a thing. But the poetic conversations do lend themselves to being acted out and even sung in an oratorical or operatic kind of musical composition. In fact, some have done just that, composing music and developing stage directions for actors to express the poetry musically. We'll come back to this point, and I'll summarize how I see the story unfolding. Next, we need to recognize where this book is in the Bible. It is among the wisdom literature, and it has always been recognized as a wisdom book. Therefore, it has something to teach us about living in this world, about human interactions, about the fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of true wisdom. The primary message of the book highlights the God-designed power of sexuality. In light of this God-designed power, the book communicates a warning to those who would misuse the gift of God, while also encouraging the full enjoyment of this gift of God by a husband and a wife joined together by God in the covenant of marriage. The key passage in the book is Psalm 8, 6 and 7, where the wife addresses her husband saying, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of Yahweh. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Now, your Bible translation might not have a reference to the Lord there in verse 6. This would be the only place in the song where God is referred to directly. And many students of Scripture throughout the generations have found it difficult to believe that He'd be named in this way, in this place, in this book. There is some ambiguity here. Remember back to our study of some of the Psalms this past summer, if you were with us. Several times we encountered the word, hallelujah, hallelujah. Which we explained as two Hebrew words. The word hallelujah, which is a command for y'all to praise. Y'all praise is a literal translation of the Hebrew word hallelujah. Then Yah is an abbreviated form of the divine name that we usually say as Yahweh. Well, here in Psalm 8 6, we have the same kind of thing where we have Yah on the end of another word, a noun this time. A noun that means flame. So if the poet is here intending a reference to Yahweh, and I believe that the poet is, then the point is that the flames that come from the kind of love being described, love between a husband and a wife, ultimately find their origin in Yahweh himself. Thus, to interpret the imagery... The covenant love expressed in marriage, which is as strong and permanent as death—it doesn't let its inhabitants go—kindles and cultivates a fire that flames out in passion, produced and empowered by God Himself. This fire is a reference to the sexual intimacy designed by God and given as a gift to be enjoyed by husband and wife together. This love and the fire that comes out of it cannot be put out by a flood of water. Can you imagine a fire that cannot be put out by floods of water? Such a gift can't be, shouldn't be, cheapened by attempting to put a monetary price tag on it either. If you haven't noticed, I love language. In case the point isn't already clear from what we've said, let me play a language game with you in English. That kind of illustrates the point we're talking about here. Do you know what the word fireplace means? This is not a trick question. It's a place for fire. Now, think about this for a moment. Apparently, this word was first used in English in the 1600s. Some English-speaking person saw a partially enclosed space and said, I can put fire in there and it will provide heat for the house and not burn down the house. So a fireplace is not just a place for fire, but it's an appropriate place for fire. It's a place where fire can burn without destroying It's a safe place for fire. By God's design, sex is as powerful and potentially destructive as fire. With the powerful design, God also created a fireplace, a safe space where the fire can burn without destroying. It's called marriage. This is the main message of the Song of Songs. One writer summarizes it like this, commenting particularly on the verses in chapter 8. The wife proclaims, yes, erotic passion is playing with fire. And its flames of sexual love are meant to warm a single hearth. This author then goes on and adds a different metaphor to elaborate. He writes, love, biblically uh, biblically understood, is the envelope in which passionate sexual desire can develop its consuming intensity and buoy rather than harm us. Love has strength as strong as death to keep its passion jealously and exclusively committed to a helpmeet. Sexuality is such a radical and formidable gift from God because it holds the potential for us to beget and to give life to a new other human being. Think about the power required to create a human being. We recognize even their in conception that God's power is at work. However, just consider the wonder of the biological processes that unfold in conception. That is the closest human beings get, and it's awfully close, to actual creation like God creates. That is the power of sex as God designed it all of the Old Testament is prophetic. Jesus indicated that there are things in the in all the Old Testament Scriptures that point to Him, that are fulfilled in Him. Does that include the greatest song, this Song of Songs, which is never explicitly quoted in the New Testament? Surely it does. Famously, most Jews and most Christians until very recently viewed the Song of Songs as an allegory, about Yahweh's marriage with Israel or Christ's marriage with the church. It seems that this strategy was developed to avoid what seems obvious to most students of Scripture today. This book is about human sexuality. The power of human sexual expression was viewed as dangerous in and of itself at times. Even where there might be the recognition that sex is a good gift from God, the danger of sexual immorality was, has often overshadowed the goodness of sexual expression in marriage. So rather than attempt to process the way human sexuality is depicted in Song of Songs, many have chosen to suppress the details in favor of reading everything in the Song especially every erotic detail as symbolic of spiritual realities while rejecting the physical realities. Today, the pendulum has swung to the other extreme so that most students of Scripture alive today view the book as only about sexual intimacy. The book is erotic poetry extolling the value of the human body the power of human sexuality, and the wonder of sexual intimacy in marriage. While I am certainly not alone in my approach to this book, though I admit I have some distinct angles not shared by many folks, I simply ask the question, can't it be both? Without resorting to the unacceptable approach of allegory, I believe that the book should be viewed, as I mentioned earlier, a poetic parable. A poetic parable with a typological, prophetic, messianic significance. To tease this out further, let's take a look at the speakers, the voices, the singers in the book. Who are the singers? I've already noted how I believe King Solomon is related to this book. I don't believe he's the author or composer of this song, but I also don't think he's a character in the song. I don't believe he is the beloved Let me show you specifically one passage, though there are many others, that leads me to this conclusion. Look at Psalm 8, verses 11 and 12, up on the screen, or in your sermon notes, well, it's not in your sermon notes, is it? Or in your Bible, how about that? Um, But up on the screen, you can see how I lay out the poetic lines of these verses. Psalm 8, verse 11, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit two hundred. Here, the wife is speaking to the daughters of Jerusalem about Solomon. We do see her appear to address Solomon in the middle of verse 12, but I believe this is an occasion of what is called apostrophe, In literary studies. It's like when Juliet says, Wherefore art thou, Romeo? In the Shakespearean play. Romeo is not actually there. Or at least she doesn't know that he's outside listening to her. But she addresses him as though he were there in conversation with her. So here this woman is speaking about King Solomon. Notice what she's doing. She's contrasting Solomon's vineyard with her own vineyard. Now, throughout the song, vineyard is used as a metaphor for the woman's body. So here, the woman is actually saying that she doesn't belong to Solomon. He can't have her. This is because throughout the song, she belongs to another, the Beloved. Solomon is viewed as a distant character in all of his mentions, mentioned and spoken about and even dreamed about at one place, but not an actor in the story, not a speaker in the conversation. It's likely also that her mention of the thousand that Solomon may have is a specific reference to what we're told in 1 Kings 11.3. King Solomon had 700 wives who were his who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. So the woman is perhaps here claiming not to be among them, and perhaps pointedly indicating that Solomon has plenty of women, and he doesn't have any right or any claim on her. So then if Solomon is in the background, who are the foregrounded singers? The woman is only specified as the Shulamite in Psalm 6.13. Typically, when we see a word with an ite ending, we're talking about an ethnicity or a nationality like Canaanite or Israelite. So we're not given her name. She remains anonymous. Her mother is mentioned a few times, and her brothers are mentioned in Psalm six. Interestingly, there is no father mentioned in the whole book even where the word father would be expected. She speaks of her mother's house in Psalm 3-4. Normally, a person would refer to their father's house in the Old Testament. Her brothers are also not referred to as brothers. Instead, they are her mother's sons. Perhaps she's distancing herself from them since they treated her so poorly in chapter 1. One other thing to notice about the way she's characterized is that the word Shulamite is related to the name Solomon in Hebrew. We say Solomon in English. In Hebrew, it sounds like Shlomo, Shlomo, Shulamite, Shlomo, Shulamite, Shlomo. You can see the connection, I hope, Um, or hear it. Some have suggested that her label here is designed to refer to her as a female Solomon, the female embodiment of what Solomon should have been with his great gift of wisdom, the Solomoness, if you will. I like that suggestion, but I won't make much of it. I will refer to the woman simply as Shulamite, as though that were her name. Like Shulamite, the beloved is not named. However, he is clearly described as a shepherd in Psalm 1-7 and Psalm 6-2 and 3. The word translated graze repeatedly in the book is the Hebrew verb we could equally well translate as to shepherd. It refers to the work of a shepherd, primarily focused on feeding the sheep. So I will refer to the couple as Shulamite and the shepherd. Next Sunday, we'll consider the woman's perspective, highlighting how she expresses her love for the shepherd. And then the following Sunday, we'll look at the shepherd's perspective, highlighting how he expresses his love for Shulamite. So with the identity of the beloved specified as the shepherd, we can begin to see some of the potential typological prophetic significance of the story. Wherever we see shepherds in the Old Testament, we focus our gaze carefully to see if there may be any shadows of the good shepherd, Jesus. Now follow this carefully. It is the nature of both Old Testament wisdom... And also Old Testament prophecy, so much of which is Hebrew poetry, to use subtle figurative language to communicate the key messages. It is possible, just possible, that the primary Hebrew word that Shulamite uses to refer to the shepherd has a messianic intent attached to it. Only a Hebrew reader could get this, and only a Hebrew reader who was expecting a Messianic meaning in this Old Testament book. So, if you'll put that slide up on the screen, Phyllis, you can see this on the screen, and the significance of this is entirely visual. You have to see it to get it. So, even if you don't know Hebrew, I bet you can see that those two words look almost exactly alike, right? Nod for me that you can see that they look almost exactly alike. Um, the top word that you see up there is pronounced dode. And this is the Hebrew word used by Shulamite 27 times to refer to the shepherd. The daughters of Jerusalem also use this word to refer to him an additional four times. This word is usually translated beloved in most of our English Bibles. In Hebrew, it usually has an extra letter on the end to indicate the possessive pronoun, my beloved. We'll talk more about the meaning of this important word next week the bottom word is pronounced David. Get it? It's the name David in Hebrew. The main part of both of those words, what you can see that looks identical, those are the Hebrew consonants. They are the Hebrew equivalents of the English D, V, and D again. Go ahead and move to the next side, Phyllis. So originally, Hebrew didn't write vowels... But the Hebrew manuscripts we use to translate our Bibles have vowels added above and below the words, the consonants. So those little dots and squiggles above and underneath are the different vowels that cause these words to be pronounced so differently. Dode versus David. What's the point? Seeing that string of three consonants more than 30 times in this song could lead a Hebrew reader to be thinking about the future David, the descendant of David, the prophesied Messiah. David was a shepherd, too, right? So, in my reading of this song, Shulamite is praising and extolling and adoring her beloved shepherd, with King Solomon, the polygamist failed son of David, in the background being implicitly critiqued. Shulamite is not attracted to or drawn to Solomon. No, she only has eyes for her beloved shepherd. Could we dare say that what we see in this song is a woman's adoration of and intimate connection to... One greater than Solomon. Didn't Jesus refer to himself as something greater than Solomon in Matthew 12, 42? And there's one, one more important set of singers to consider, the daughters of Jerusalem. They are mentioned by name eight times in the song. One says daughters of Zion. They speak or sing on about nine occasions. In the song, they address Shulamite six times, the shepherd twice, and both of them together one time. At different times, both Shulamite and the shepherd address them directly. Essentially, they function as a stand in for the original readers. So, in the outline I've provided, and we'll look at that in a minute, I've referred to them as the audience, which is probably not the best term, but the point is that what Shulamite says to the daughters of Jerusalem becomes a major part of the message of the book. As many have noticed, there is a refrain or a repeated chorus in this song, and I believe this refrain should drive how we understand the structure of the song, how it's laid out. The first occurrence of the refrain is in Song 2-7. Shulamite says to the daughters of Jerusalem, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is repeated verbatim in 3 5 and almost identically in 8 4. A similar adjuration, Shulamite puts them under oath, makes them swear, appears in 5 8. So, in my view, each of these calls for an oath close out a major section of the song. I'll show you what I mean in the outline in just a minute. It's possible, again, just possible, that these daughters of Jerusalem should be viewed historically as women in King Solomon's harem. Or, similarly, we could view them as young women in the community of Jerusalem who wanted to be chosen for King Solomon's harem. To become one of his concubines would have been desirable for some Israelite women. But Shulamite is perhaps attempting to persuade them not to seek out such a life. Instead, far better is to seek out God's designed ideal of monogamous marriage, where one man loves and cherishes one woman for life. This ideal is depicted in the song for the daughters of Jerusalem and us to consider. This brings us to the warning edge of the message of the song, This repeated refrain challenges these presumably unwed women to swear that they won't stir up or awaken love until it pleases. That she puts them under oath shows the seriousness of this call. These single women must not stoke the fires of love. They must not play with the fire of love until actual covenant love has been set in place, established covenantally. The implication is that if they do play with this fire, they will surely get burned. Certainly, this warning could be extended to single men as well as single women. Brothers and sisters, part of the message of the song of songs, part of the message from the Lord to you in this God-breathed Scripture is that you must not play with your sexuality. Don't take it lightly Don't rush it. Recognize the danger that's really there. Fire outside the fireplace will burn down your house. Sex outside marriage, sexual expression in all of its forms, from lustful fantasizing in the mind, to consuming pornography with the eyes, to masturbation with the hands, to actual sexual contact with another person. All sex outside of marriage will destroy your life. Without repentance, that fire will burn and consume and destroy eternally. As Russell Moore says, God warns us against sexual immorality and distortion not because God wishes to restrict us from pleasure, but because God knows how sex flourishes and how sex can destroy. So how does this song work? You can see a simple outline of the song on the next slide on the screen. In your sermon notes, you'll find a more detailed outline. I encourage you to use this as a guide when you go home and read the Song of Songs this week. That's your homework, by the way, if I'm allowed to give homework. Read it and follow that as a kind of guide. Other study Bibles and commentaries will outline it differently, and that's okay but I want you to at least try to understand the song the way I'm sketching it out here. Also, as you read your own Bible, you'll probably notice labels for the different speakers. Different translations will label them differently. And in just a few verses, there's disagreement about who's actually speaking. And, but the labels can help you navigate the conversation and keep it relatively straight. With my outline, I certainly don't... Uh, Intend to claim the final definitive word on the nature, meaning, or interpretation of this song, but I do believe that my reading of it is, a, is plausible, at least, and so I commend it to you. Let me draw your attention to a couple of oddities in my outline. You'll see Shulamite's dream, Roman numeral 4, IV, as 3 6 to 5 8. Her dream actually begins at 3 1. Look there for just a moment, song 3 1. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. Almost everyone recognizes that this is Shulamite describing the contents of a dream. But there are a host of different options for when she stops describing the dream. Look at song 5-2. I slept, but my heart was awake. So here, she's describing the contents of a dream as well. Some students of Scripture see this as a second dream, a separate dream, separate from the first. I take it as a continuation of the original dream. So I take all of chapters 3 through 6 as the contents of her elaborate dream. Look at the first part of Psalm 613. Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you I see this as the daughters of Jerusalem waking her up from the dream at last. Now, I'm explaining this now because I want you to know that it is a bit odd. There are others who see it this way, so I'm not a complete maverick. What makes this so odd is that the consummation of their marriage is described in the midst of the dream sequence. In fact, some have analyzed the Hebrew poetry and concluded that there is a precise midpoint to this whole song, and the midpoint is 416, song 416 to 5.1, two verses there, which poetically describes the couple's sexual union on their wedding nights. There are exactly 111 poetic lines before song 416, and there are exactly 111 poetic lines after song 5.1, according to some students of Scripture. But counting poetic lines is somewhat subjective and can't always be determinative of a poem's meaning. Even if this is the midpoint, almost everyone recognizes that song 8, 6 to 7 carries the primary message of the song. In any case, I do see Shulamite's dream as the heart of the narrative progression in the song. And she dreams of her wedding night, as many brides-to-be often do. Now, think about dreams for just a moment. Dreams are interesting reflections of our feelings, our fears, our hopes, and our experiences. They're often a jumbled mix. So notice that Song 3, 6 through 11, is part of her dream. She dreams about King Solomon's wedding day. Now, couldn't you imagine a young bride-to-be recently... Watching the internet broadcasted royal wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, all the while she's dreaming about and anticipating and planning her own wedding. That night, she falls asleep with visions of the royal wedding dancing in her head, even as she's thinking about her own beloved, her own fiancé. What does her dream look like? It might have features of the royal wedding. And in her dream, she's the bride, but who's the groom? It might be an amalgam of Prince Harry and her fiancé. I think that's something of what we see going on in this dream sequence. She dreams about the wedding of Solomon, and then she progresses into dreaming about her own wedding night between herself and her beloved with her anticipations of that night expressed by, in her dream her beloved shepherd praising her naked body in chapter 4, verses 1 to 15, just prior to their first sexual encounter. That's chapter 4, verse 16, and chapter 5, verse 1. Naked and not ashamed, as God intended. But then, immediately after that, her dream turns into a nightmare. After the wedding night, her groom is vanished, nowhere to be found. She runs out to find him, and the city guardians catch her and abuse her. Earlier in the dream, those watchmen were merely unhelpful, but now they become oppressive and evil. This is often the way of dreams. Before the dream concludes, Shulamite and the shepherd are reunited, and she records their exchange of mutual adoration before he disappears yet again in Psalms 6, 11 and 12. It's at this point, I think, that the daughters of Jerusalem wake her up so that she can receive the real-life praises of her beloved shepherd. The rest of this section, through chapter 7 and up to chapter 8, verse 3, seems to be the expression of anticipation for the approaching wedding. Thus, I see the actual consummation of their marriage, the actual description of the wedding night, simply noted in Psalm 8, 5. The actual sexual connection is too intimate and private to be described even with figurative poetic detail. We'll talk more about the figurative language of the song over the next couple of weeks. But here it's important to note up front that the figurative language throughout the song prevents us from thinking of this song as in any way equivalent to or parallel to pornography or smut literature. There are folks who look at this book that way. But the poetry keeps us from seeing the way that we see in plain description or visual depiction. As one writer puts it, the song keeps us out of the garden of eroticism. It renders our looking less voyeuristic and our pleasure more aesthetic than erotic. By Listen to the metaphor here. By clothing the lover's bodies in metaphors which never quite give access to the body being described. As you read through this song, try to imagine what the man and the woman look like. It ain't human. (laughs) And that's the point. These poetic, metaphorical descriptions are meant to keep a veil up, to keep the body covered appropriately. Some folks have read this song as describing sexual intimacy outside the bonds of marriage since it's unclear when and where clear covenantal bonds are described. An indication that this is not the case is found in Psalm 8, 8 through 10. This is another aspect of the wisdom instruction of the book, as Shulamite again addresses the daughters of Jerusalem in response to a question. In her answer, Shulamite indicates her virginity prior to her union with the shepherd just described in Psalm 8, 5. Thus, the Song of Songs also upholds the value and importance of virginity, celibacy apart from marriage. Look at Song 8, 8-10. to 10. The daughters of Jerusalem present a scenario to Shulamite. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door... We will enclose her with boards of cedar. There's a young girl among them that they're concerned about. It may be that "on the day when she is spoken for" refers to the possibility that King Solomon may come to take her into his harem. or they could be speaking generically for whenever a fella may come a call. Either way, they're wanting to know how best to protect her virginity. They refer to this young girl as possibly a wall." For a girl to be a wall would be to be a girl who protects her virginity, who keeps men out, literally. Uh, But they're concerned that she might be promiscuous. For a girl to be a door is to be a girl who opens herself up, literally, and welcomes men in, literally. If she's chaste, protecting her virginity, The daughters of Jerusalem are committing to reinforcing that with her, to help support her in maintaining her virginity without the commitment of marriage. But if she's promiscuous, the daughters of Jerusalem will lock her up. They'll be more forceful in acting for her best interest to protect her, even when she doesn't want to be protected. This communicates the high value of her body, the high value of her virginity, the high value of her purity. This is a little girl we're talking about. And this is the community coming around and saying, we must protect her. This is a message for the church. The other women in the community, or perhaps even her older siblings, see this as so important that they're willing to act aggressively and forcefully to protect her from giving it up. Then Shulamite responds, picking up in verse 10, I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Shulamite claims that she held her virginity intact, even when she had matured physically. So she remained a virgin to an age older than this young girl that the daughters of Jerusalem are asking about. The last line of verse 10 is significant. The word then indicates that she held her virginity, kept her purity for the shepherd. She describes this as being, in his eyes, as one who finds peace. The word, Hebrew word translated peace is the famous shalom. And this Hebrew word is the root of both Solomon's name and the title Shulamite. The word shalom is so much more than the idea of peace as a calm feeling or even peace as the absence of conflict. Shalom communicates ideas of wholeness and completion. The shepherd recognizes Shulamite as the helper fit for him, bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh, to draw in the words of Adam in seeing his bride. And she too, the Shulamite, also sees her genuine completeness and wholeness. In her connection to the shepherd. The one flesh union is intended to be an expression of the shalom, the wholeness and completion that only God brings about. Still, that doesn't pin down exactly when this couple exchanged their marriage vows and established the marriage covenant. There is what we might call a secondary refrain scattered throughout the song. Like the primary refrain, Shulamite putting the daughters of Jerusalem under oath. This secondary refrain is also repeated three times. Song 2.16 is the first occasion where Shulamite says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. She flips this around in Song 6.3. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. And she says it slightly differently in Song 7.10, which I see as directly leading up to the actual consummation of the wedding night. I am my beloved's, and his desire is Is for me. This repeated statement is important because it echoes what we should recognize as the fundamental expression of the covenant relationship between God and His people. First articulated in anticipation in Exodus 6 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. This is then compressed and repeated in anticipation of the new covenant, the new marriage in the prophets, especially Jeremiah and Ezekiel, as, I will be your God and you will be my people. There's abundant evidence from the ancient world that this is the basic way the heart of a marriage covenant was established. I will be your husband, you will be my wife, and vice versa. Thus, the song has been composed with an indication throughout that Shulamite and her beloved shepherd are already betrothed. Betrothed. That is different than our modern conception of engagement. But they are betrothed, which means to be committed to each other in a bond that can only be broken in the ancient world by divorce. So it's appropriate for Shulamites to make this repeated statement of mutual possession and covenant in anticipation of the actual establishment of the covenant. But we have to draw from the larger biblical context to see clearly that the sexual union anticipated and then poetically described is certainly in the context of and following Shulamite and the shepherds' public establishment of their marriage covenant. The song is so focused on celebrating the sexual aspect of the marriage covenant that the ceremony and the promises of the covenant stand in the background so that we can all see the goodness and the power of human sexuality itself. To conclude, we need to consider the two-directional message for the church. There are several ways that the greatest song harkens back to the Edenic beginning in Genesis, even as it points forward to something greater. The sexual intimacy described in this song does indeed highlight the shameless nakedness of the original couple before their rebellion against God ruined it all. This pure sexuality, depicted with all manner of poetic imagery drawn from creation itself, suggests that marriage can recapture, marriage can recapture a genuine reflection of God's original di- design laid out so simply in Genesis 2. However, there is a dark backdrop. There is pain and difficulty depicted in the song. It has a certain realism. There's longing and separation. There's the lewd backdrop of the harem of King Solomon. There's fear of abuse and danger. The theme of the garden permeates the song. In several places, Shulamite is a garden. For example, look at the words of the shepherd in Shulamite's dream in song 412. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. That she is a locked garden implies her pure virginity. No man has entered her, literally. Not even him at this point. Her body is depicted as a garden where her husband may enter to enjoy the sights and the smells and the sounds and the tastes and the physical delights that the garden produces. But in other places, Shulamite is in a garden. The shepherd describes her this way in his last words of the song in Song 8:13, O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice? Let me hear it. Surely this emphasis on garden imagery is meant to point back to the Garden of Eden. So what's the message for us in all of this? Pointing back to creation like this should indicate that our marriages can faithfully live out the Creator's good design, particularly in our sexual intimacy. To do so will be challenging. There are limitations and obstacles and threats. Nevertheless, when God joins a godly man and a godly woman together in the covenant relationship of marriage, sexual intimacy can be enjoyed in such a way that God is glorified and both husband and wife are blessed. Nakedness without shame, intimacy without fear is gloriously possible by God's grace. In line with this, the song upholds marital intimacy as a good gift of God, and it's not just about sex. There are at least nine aspects of marital intimacy that can be seen in this song. Let me list them. Physical intimacy is the one that's most prominent, with descriptions of kissing, touching, cuddling, hugging, gazing, and, of course, sexual contact clearly depicted. But there's also evidence of emotional intimacy, feeling lovesick, overwhelmed with affection, captivated hearts, excitement, desire. There's intellectual intimacy. There's friendship and companionship. There's what we might call aesthetic intimacy. There's beauty. There's connection with nature and natural surroundings. There's all this floral imagery everywhere. It's not a bad thing, husbands, when your wife wants to put flowers up on the wall or everywhere else. There's something, there's what we might call recreational intimacy. There's fellowship and there's travel, even described. There's what we might call work intimacy. There's shepherding and vine tending, viticulture, though these may be strictly metaphorical in the song. There's what we might call crisis intimacy, going through hard times together, enduring threats depicted metaphorically as floods or foxes. There's communication intimacy all over the place. The whole book is a chorus of conversation, largely between the man and the woman. There's dialogue, and dialogue that particularly focuses on praise and affirmation, verbal praise and affirmation. From husband to wife and wife to husband. And finally, there's what we might call public intimacy. Public intimacy. What I mean is, other people benefit from their love, other people benefit from their relationship. The critique of Solomon is a helpful thing. The prophetic challenge to Solomon's sinfulness is a helpful thing. It should benefit him. Don't think it did, but it should. Should have. And then there's also the instruction of the daughters of Jerusalem, the primary focus of the song and the message of the song. All of these aspects of intimacy need to be attended to between husbands and wives today. Along these lines, Nancy Piercy writes, you should become naked and vulnerable physically only when you are ready to become naked and vulnerable with your whole self. The reference to physical unity was intended to express a joyous unity on all other levels as well including mind, emotion, and spirit. Scripture offers a stunningly high view of physical union as a union of whole persons across all dimensions. That's the backwards-looking message pointing us back to creation, highlighting God's good design for marriage, sex, and intimacy. But the song also looks forward. We've already mentioned the prophetic, messianic, Significance of the book and hinted at the direction this goes. If we identify the shepherd as a possible type of Christ, then can we legitimately see this as pointing to Christ's love for his bride, the church? Of course we can. As Professor James Hamilton says, in the music of the Song of Songs, the messianic remnant of Israel got a glimpse of the one they hoped would arise to restore them to Eden. Moreover, since... The song since the song is framed primarily from the perspective of the bride, the woman speaks much more than the man. No jokes about that, fellas. But it's true in the song; she speaks more often, more frequently, and a lot more. Um, and since the song drives us toward appreciating the intimacy. And the union between Shulamite and her beloved shepherd, perhaps we can also see this from the church's perspective, the bride's perspective, as a song celebrating our union with Christ. Both the saving union with Christ, the initial connection we begin to experience the moment we begin to trust Jesus, but also the ongoing longing for And pursuit of experiential intimacy with our Lord. And of course, also the great eager anticipation and hope for the full physical resurrected union still to come. This greatest song is, this greatest song of all is about sexual intimacy in marriage. But what is sexual intimacy in marriage about? Doesn't the New Testament clearly indicate that marriage and sexual intimacy in marriage point toward the greater marriage, the greater intimacy that we were all made for, the eternal union with Jesus? It is no accident that Shulamite gets the last word in the song, and her last word is a call for the quick return of her beloved shepherd. In Psalm 814, she closes the song with these words, Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. It is no accident that the bride of Christ echoes this closing invitation at the conclusion of the whole Bible. Revelation twenty-two seventeen says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. That is the Spirit-empowered bride of Christ, the church, addressing her beloved shepherd, asking Him to return. The full-bodied, resurrected union is eagerly anticipated. Even better, even better than a hoped-for return to Eden, the resurrected church will join her resurrected Savior in a resurrected new creation which will far surpass the beauty and wonder of the original creation and of Eden. Would you pray with me? Father, would you hasten the return of the Bridegroom? We are called now to make ourselves ready. Oh, Father, would you help us, equip us, empower us by your Spirit to make us ready. Make us ready for that great union to to come. We wait for our Shepherd. We wait for our Savior. We wait for our Bridegroom. Oh, Father, would you help us to wait well. In the midst of that waiting, would you help us to pursue our great intimacy with our Savior in our day-to-day lives? And for those of us who are married, would you help us to live that intimacy out between ourselves and our spouses? Help us to develop and cultivate and work toward greater intimacy, greater love, greater appreciation, greater unity and union in our marriages. Would you help us to remember that our marriages, our union, even down to the sexual level, is intended to paint a picture of the union we have with our Savior, Jesus. Oh, Father, would you give us strength to paint that picture well? Would you give us grace to extend grace? Would you help us to heal from the wounds that we've endured, whether in our marriages or outside of them? Father, there is nothing, nothing, that is too hard for you. And so we ask that you would bring healing and restoration where it's needed, in individual hearts, in relationships that are broken or strained. Father, exercise your creative power to restore what's been broken. Give us hope for the future. Help us to root ourselves daily in your word that has the power to change us, to cleanse us, and to renew us the way that we need to be renewed. Thank you for being with us on this journey. Thank you for your commitment to hold us fast until we cross the finish line. Hasten the day, Lord. Hasten the day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.